This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In recent years, a curious fad has sprung up among some of the customers on eBay. Toy collectors from around the world have begun buying, selling, and trading antique dolls with one another. Now, as someone who can neither confirm nor deny the rumor he may have once had a pretty sizable Star Wars action figure collection, this doesn't seem all that weird. But what is rather odd about this particular set of collectors is that these dolls have something extra special about them. Namely, they're haunted. Back in 1988, moviegoers across the globe were introduced to a walking, talking, killing machine with freckles and cute little overalls named Chucky. Although Child's Play wasn't the first or last killer doll film to strike fear in the collective hearts of movie audiences, it was Chucky's introduction that led to a lot of our modern obsession with haunted dolls. If you search websites like eBay and Etsy, you can find a thriving marketplace for buyers and sellers of children's toys that are purportedly possessed by spirits. Most haunted dolls go for around $50 on the collector's market, although some of the rarest and most highly prized dolls can sell for as high as four figures. The typical bio for one of these dolls gives a detailed description of the doll's past, including an overview of the spirit's life and death, as well as a description of their personality and temperament. Dolls are then given a ranking based on just how much paranormal activity you can expect with your new plaything. That way you can know just how much potential danger you're getting yourself into. Back in 2000, eBay tried to crack down on the practice of selling haunted dolls by issuing a new rule banning the auctioning of human souls, on the grounds that no one had yet conclusively proven that souls exist or not. But many sellers managed to get around this rule by labeling the dolls as is, or for entertainment purposes only. Of course, as you can imagine, this opens the door to a lot of potential fraud, so if you're in the market for a haunted doll, buyer beware. And if you do happen to purchase a doll that really is possessed by an invisible entity, well, buyer beware in that instance, too. In more recent years, there's been another child's toy that has appeared in her own series of movies that might take the crown from Chucky for scariest haunted doll. I'm talking about Annabelle, of course. In the Conjuring universe, the Annabelle doll is a creepy-looking porcelain figure that's roughly the size of a toddler. But the film version of Annabelle is based on a real doll that looks very different in reality. Until recently, the real Annabelle was on public display in the occult museum owned by self-described demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed Warren died in 2006, and his wife Lorraine passed away in April 2019. Since Lorraine's death, the museum has been closed and, according to their website, is currently looking for a new location to reopen. The real Annabelle is a raggedy Andal that first began to earn its sinister reputation back in 1970 when a student nurse in Hartford, Connecticut received the doll as a Christmas gift from her mother. According to the Warrens, the young woman's mother purchased the doll at a second-hand store, and no one knows the doll's history before that. Not long after bringing Annabelle home, the nurse and her roommate began reporting a string of eerie occurrences inside their apartment. 
Sometimes the nurses would leave Annabelle sitting in the living room only to come home later and discover she had somehow moved into one of their bedrooms. Other times the doll's owner would claim she would leave Annabelle's legs uncrossed, only to return later to find them intertwined. As time went on, the nurses became increasingly paranoid as they began finding tiny notes written on scraps of parchment, saying things like, Help me, scrawled in crayon. Neither of the young women had any idea where the parchment had come from, since there was none in the apartment. Then one day, the girls swore they both witnessed the tall's tiny arms moving on their own and flopping onto a table. They then reached out to a local psychic for advice. The medium held a seance and reported to them that they were in the presence of the spirit of a six- or seven-year-old girl named Annabelle who had died in a car crash. Following the seance, the young women began treating the doll more like a house guest, since they came to believe the spirit of the little girl named Annabelle was harmless. But that too turned out to be untrue. One night, the boyfriend of one of the young women fell asleep on the living room sofa, but he soon awoke screaming. He told the girls he'd had a dream in which Annabelle had begun crawling up his leg. After that, he lashed out angrily at the doll, grabbing it and flinging it across the room. He screamed at it that it was just a stupid toy and it couldn't hurt him. Only it did. According to Ed Warren, the entity attached to the doll didn't like being mistreated. Shortly after the boyfriend's freakout, seven bloody wounds appeared on his body. Four slash marks across his chest and three across his stomach. They looked like claw marks. After that, the nurses were no longer quite so happy to have their third roommate living with them anymore. They reached out to an Episcopal priest for help, and he in turn directed them to the Warrens who had developed a reputation for investigating the paranormal. The Warrens took the doll and added it to their occult museum collection where Annabelle has been kept in a locked glass case ever since. Skeptics point out that pretty much everything we know about Annabelle comes directly from the word of Ed and Lorraine Warren. There doesn't seem to be much corroborating evidence beyond the story they've told. According to Ed, Annabelle may have even taken a life once. Ed claimed that one day a young man came to the museum and began taunting Annabelle, daring her to do something nasty to him. Ed ordered the young man and his girlfriend to leave and... Three hours later, they got into a freak motorcycle accident that killed him. But Annabelle isn't the only haunted doll you can see on public display. In the Menenji Temple in Japan, there's a doll named Okiku on display that has human hair that allegedly grows on its own and needs to be trimmed from time to time. Some say you can even see the doll's lips opening occasionally, displaying human teeth. In British Columbia's Quesnel and District Museum, you can visit a haunted doll named Mandy whose owners gave her away after reportedly hearing the doll crying like an infant in the middle of the night. Keep in mind, this doll does not have a voice box. But in all the history of purportedly haunted dolls around the world, there is one in particular that stands high above all the rest. This particular doll currently resides in a museum in Key West, Florida. His story has inspired countless other haunted doll books, comics, movies, and TV shows. This doll's name is Robert. I'm Nate Hale, currently cowering in a corner clutching a vintage Luke Skywalker action figure for protection to ward off evil. And this is The Conspirators.
March 31st, 2010. Dear Robert, I am very sorry for not asking your permission to take your picture while visiting the museum last week. Since I have taken your picture without permission, many strange things have happened to me. While driving back from the Keys, a deer ran out in front of our car. We had to swerve to avoid hitting it and ran off the road. We almost hit a tree. Two days later, we had a small kitchen fire. Also, we have been hearing childlike giggles coming from our basement. Last night, I was home all alone. I heard a voice coming from the basement. When I went to investigate, I tripped and fell down the bottom three stairs. I got up to run out, but the door was locked. My husband said I probably turned the lock myself without even thinking about it and locked myself in the basement. But honestly, Robert, we both know the truth. Please accept my deepest apology for taking your picture without asking. Also, please accept my daughter's apology for sticking out her tongue at you and making fun of you. That's just one of the hundreds of letters that get sent to the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida every year. Ever since Robert the Doll went on display, the museum has received a constant stream of letters much like that one. From people who claim to have offended the doll in some way, and have since been cursed with misfortune. Injuries, car crashes, divorce, even death. All these things and more have been blamed on Robert the Doll by people who believe they've somehow angered him. The story of Robert the Doll is one that has evolved over the years as it's been told and retold. As with any historical ghost story, there are some parts of the story that get told as fact that have been added or exaggerated over time. In 2014, author David L. Sloan attempted to write the definitive history of Robert the Doll, and it's from his book that I've drawn much of my research. One of the most famous tourist destinations in Key West is a stately, turn-of-the-century Victorian home known simply as the Artist's House because of its former owner, Gene Otto, a well-respected local painter. It was here that Robert the Doll once used to reside. There's a staircase at the rear of the house that leads up to a trap door that opens into an attic room with low beams of exposed wood. There, in the center of the room, you could once find a table, a bench, and a rocking chair, all of them child-sized. These were Robert's things, and it was here that the doll's former owner, Gene Otto, would play with him. If you see pictures of Robert the doll, it's easy to understand why people might be frightened of him, even if he isn't haunted. He is pretty creepy to the eye. Robert stands about three feet tall and he's dressed in a cute little sailor outfit. His body is covered in felt and stuffed with straw. It's his face, though, that is particularly unsettling. His face is mostly featureless with a rough texture almost like a burn victim. And two black button eyes that seem to stare at you with amusement. According to the legend, as it's most often told... Robert the Doll was a gift given to Gene Otto as a young boy by an angry Jamaican servant. The servant placed a voodoo curse on the doll out of revenge for being mistreated by the boy's parents. Another version of the story that's told less often is that Gene's grandfather purchased the doll from a mysterious stranger he met on a boat trip through the Tortugas. One thing we do know to be true is that from the moment of their first encounter, Robert and Gene were constant companions. And if the stories are to be believed, although Gene would eventually grow old and die, Robert the Doll lives on to this day. 
Jean's parents were Thomas and Miniato. They were a well-to-do couple with a deep appreciation of the arts. Something that inspired their third son, Jean, to grow up to become a renowned local painter. In 1898, the Ottos bought a brand new home on Eaton Street. Whereas they weren't quite as wealthy as some of the other families in the neighborhood, they could still afford a number of cooks, servants, and caretakers. According to the legend, it was one of these servants who gifted the doll to young Jean, although author David Sloan says this story was made up. Instead, he discovered another story about Robert's origins that in some ways is even scarier. According to Sloan's book, Robert the doll was actually a birthday gift from the boy's grandfather, who purchased it from a toy maker in Germany. Other similar-looking dolls have been found, which certainly adds weight to this being the true story of Robert's origins. Although Robert is particularly unusual in that he's quite a bit larger than many other similar dolls that still exist. Sloan suspects Robert may have been a window display model. But assuming this is true, there's something else that's especially creepy about Robert's history. You see, Robert didn't always wear the cute little sailor outfit he's known for. The sailor outfit was actually given to the doll to match one Jean's parents often dressed him in. When Robert the doll would have first arrived from Germany, he would have looked very different. And to a lot of people nowadays, quite a bit scarier. Because when Robert was fresh and new from the toy store, he would have been dressed in a multicolored Harlequin costume. Or in other words, Robert was a clown doll. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. When Robert finally came into Gene Otto's possession, it was love at first sight. Gene's full name was Robert Eugene Otto, although he never went by his first name, instead giving that to Robert as his first gift. The boy and the doll did everything together. Robert had his own place to sit next to the dining room table. Gene would sometimes sneak Robert food when he thought no one was looking. When Gene took a bath, Robert was right there in the bathroom next to the tub. The two of them played together, they slept together. Everyone thought it was adorable. What was less adorable were the times when Jean's parents would walk past their son's bedroom and hear two distinctly different voices talking to one another inside. One of these voices was easily identifiable as the sweet little voice of young Jean, but the other was rougher and sounded somehow unnatural. But whenever anyone went into the room to investigate, there was only Jean and Robert sitting there. Of course, the boy's parents thought it was all innocent make-believe at first. But then things began to happen around the house that made them think otherwise. Sometimes these conversations would grow angry and heated. Jean's mother would claim she burst into the room on more than one occasion only to find Jean cowering in a corner, while Robert sat in the bed or a chair looking almost as if the doll were glaring at him. Robert did it, became one of the mantras the Ottos heard repeated over and over again. 
Whenever objects were broken or went missing, Jean swore up and down Robert was to blame. Sometimes Jean's parents would find their son's other toys broken or even horribly mutilated. Dishes and silverware were occasionally found scattered around the dining room. Articles of clothing began showing up throughout the house that had been shredded to pieces. Robert did it, was all Jean would say when confronted. Servants began reporting they would get mysteriously locked into and out of rooms throughout the house. Then they began telling the autos they were getting spooked because they could sometimes hear tiny footsteps coming from rooms where no one should have been. Other times they insisted Robert would suddenly appear in rooms throughout the house where no one had left him. Thomas and Miniato scoffed at all this at first. That is until they too began hearing strange footsteps and creaking floorboards throughout the house in the middle of the night, when everyone should have been asleep. Some stories claim the parents once woke up to hear Jean screaming in the middle of the night. When they rushed in to check on him, they found Robert pinning their son down in his bed. But even after all these incidents, the Ottos still refused to believe that all the trouble in the house was caused by the doll. It had to be Jean. The Ottos were stern in their parenting, so each time something was broken or went missing, no matter how much Jean insisted Robert was to blame, it was Jean that was punished. Some visitors to the house began to tell an altogether different story. Some people swore they saw the doll blink at them, while others insisted they could hear a child's laughter echoing through the house while neither Jean nor his siblings were present. Some of the Otto's neighbors claimed to have seen Robert peeking out from behind the curtains in the upstairs windows, or even caught glimpses of movement as someone went dashing from room to room. One story that's a little more difficult to confirm claims that one of Jean's great aunts, who was heavy into the spiritualist movement, stepped in when she heard about what was going on. She told Jean's parents that the doll was evil, and they needed to get rid of it immediately. Jean's parents packed the doll away in a large chest in the attic, but Robert apparently didn't like this turn of events one bit. The next morning, the elderly aunt was found dead in her bedroom. It's impossible to know whether it was fear for their own safety or because they simply didn't believe. But after that, the autos brought Robert back out of the chest and returned him to Jean's side. And that's where Robert remained all the way until Jean reached adulthood. When Jean Otto was a young man, he traveled to Europe to study painting. It was there he met his future wife, Anne, a beautiful and talented pianist. After Jean's parents passed away, he returned to Key West with his bride and took up residence in his former childhood home. What Anne didn't realize upon marrying Jean was that she would have a competitor for his affections. After they moved into the house on Eaton Street, Jean struck up his childhood relationship with Robert once again. He set up a special attic room for Robert and filled it with child-sized furniture. Jean began carrying Robert around the house with him and would set him up at his own place at the dinner table while he and Anne ate. Jean set up an art studio in the turret room of the house. While he was painting, he would park Robert in a chair by the window overlooking the street. Neighborhood children swore they sometimes saw Robert turning his head to watch them go by. As Jean grew older, rumors began to swirl that he was being both emotionally and physically abusive to Anne. 
But when Gene was confronted about this, he began to revert to using the same excuse he had used when he was a child. Robert did it. Anne, of course, hated the doll. She became so unnerved by its presence, she would order Gene to take it out of the room when he was with her. But sometimes when Gene complied and put Robert away in his attic bedroom, she would sometimes later find Robert sitting downstairs, waiting for her. Gene Otto died in 1974 with Robert by his side. Anne couldn't wait to leave Key West, and Robert especially fast enough. She moved to Boston, where she died a few years later. Before Anne died, she rented out the artist's house with the stipulation in the contract that Robert must remain the sole occupant of the attic room. But even after Anne left, strange stories continued to swirl around the doll. Some people swore that Robert would change positions when no one was looking. Once a plumber heard giggling from right behind him. He whirled around only to find that Robert had somehow moved closer to him than he'd been before. One renter insisted that Robert locked him in the attic for over a week and later cursed him to come down with yellow fever. One story tells of a couple who moved into the house with a ten-year-old daughter. For a while, the little girl befriended Robert, but then one night the girl's parents woke up to hear her screaming. Robert, they said, was lying on the girl's face trying to smother her. Thirty years later, the now-grown woman insists that the doll was trying to kill her. That was the final straw. The father locked Robert away in the attic. But even then, some stories claim Robert had his revenge. A week later, that same man died from carbon dioxide poison in his car parked directly in front of the house. Following that incident, Robert would be donated to the Fort East Martello Museum. In the early days, the staff was so frightened of Robert that they kept the doll locked away in a storage room. Museum workers constantly reported strange noises at night and a general sense of unease around the doll. If visitors wanted to see Robert, they had to do so by appointment. Many members of the museum staff would go out of their way to take the day off or find other ways not to be around when they had to take Robert out of storage. But even though Robert was no longer present in the artist's house, reports continued to come in about paranormal activity inside the home. Author David Sloan visited the artist's house a few years ago and swears a telephone receiver flew off the hook right in front of him. Sometimes visitors claimed doors would open on their own. Other people said that they felt like they were constantly being watched. Tourists on local ghost tours have reported seeing the shade in the turret window being drawn back as if someone was watching them. There was a shutter outside the tourist room that refused to stay open. It got so irritating that the manager had it screwed into the exterior wall of the house, only to find it tightly closed again hours later. Some people believe that the ghost of Ann Otto also haunts the artist house. Some visitors claim to have seen the ghostly figure of a woman in a wedding dress gliding down the stairs. Others have reported seeing glowing blue orbs drifting throughout the house. The artist's house was once managed by a woman with the rather remarkable name of Jessica Schreckengast Nauman. Schreckengasten, I'm not making this up, means frightened by ghosts. According to Jessica, she purchased a half dozen bright yellow decorative lemons for a glass bowl to sit out near the reception desk. 
but not long after she set them out on display, the lemons began disappearing one by one. After that, Jessica began to notice guests would sometimes walk by the bowl and silently deposit one of the lemons back in the bowl with no explanation as to why they had them in the first place. Then someone told Jessica she needed to read one of the letters that had come into the Fort East Martello Museum. In the letter, a woman told a now-familiar story of snapping a picture of Robert in his display case without asking permission first. What followed was a laundry list of misfortunes that befell the woman, including an unexpected eruption of shingles on her body. But what was particularly curious to Jessica in the woman's letter was that when she got home and opened her suitcase, inside she found a decorative plastic lemon. These all make for some great spooky stories to tell around a campfire. But what even is it about dolls that make them so scary to us humans? The actual term for this fear is pediophobia, which actually translates to fear of little children. But it's specifically attributed to the fear of dolls, statues, and human-like figurines. There's a reason that filmmakers decided to make the movie version of Annabelle a human-like porcelain doll rather than a raggedy Anne. Something that appears almost human but not quite is naturally unsettling to most people. It's a phenomenon called the Uncanny Valley, a term coined in the 1970s by Japanese robotics engineer Masahiro Mori. Fear of dolls is a sort of self-generating fear. Before the 19th century, most people didn't tend to think of dolls as scary. That really didn't begin until after toy makers began to add new innovations to dolls that made them that much more lifelike, such as recorded voice boxes and blinking eyes. Once dolls began to more closely resemble living, breathing people, then stories began to leak into pop culture about haunted dolls that were out to murder their owners. As time went on, legends began to spring up in real life about supposedly real haunted dolls, such as Annabelle or Mexico's infamous Isla de las Muñecas, the island of the dolls, a tiny strip of land that is literally covered with hundreds of broken old dolls strung up on trees to appease the spirit of a young girl who drowned. Skeptics will point to this sort of circular storytelling as the source of the legend of Robert the Doll. But unlike a lot of other haunted doll legends, the story of Robert has a lot more corroborating evidence than most others. A lot of Robert's history can be conclusively proven through documentation and eyewitness testimony. Eugene Otto was a very real person. His artwork hangs in art galleries throughout the Florida Keys and elsewhere across the country. And there are many childhood photos of him playing with Robert. Beyond that, there are plenty of living witnesses who will attest to Robert's paranormal activities. Practically every day, the Fort East Martello Museum receives letters begging Robert for forgiveness. Of course, it is possible that every one of these people are mistakenly relating normal everyday mishaps to a superstitious belief in Robert's legend. So perhaps it is just a self-fulfilling story. After all, Robert's fame also brings in thousands of tourists each year to Key West hoping to see him and hear all the spooky tales. But even if Robert is really possessed by some evil entity, we can all take comfort in knowing he is currently safely locked inside his glass case inside the museum, where he can never get out and do any real harm. Right? In David L. Sloan's book, he describes an incident that occurred not long after the museum administrators decided to have Robert refurbished a few years ago. 
The museum cleaned the doll up and did some minor repairs. By the time they were done, Robert's sailor suit was pristine white once again, and he was put back on display under glass holding his own little stuffed lion. But then one night, not long after that, a museum employee ran screaming out of the museum and immediately quit her job, refusing to ever sit foot inside the place again. She said that she had been working alone late at night inside the museum when she began hearing a child giggling in the darkness. That was spooky for sure, but she still decided to have a look around just in case it was one of her co-workers trying to play a prank on her. She followed the noises back to the chamber where Robert still sat in his case, and at first she didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. She turned to walk away, but then nearly jumped out of her skin when she swore she heard someone tapping on the glass behind her. She whipped around, but Robert was still sitting right where he was, unchanged and unmoved. Except for a couple of things. That was when she noticed the bottoms of Robert's recently cleaned feet were now dirty. And there on the floor outside the case were dozens of tiny footprints. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to say a special thanks to my friend Nina Instead for lending her voice to this episode. Nina is the host and creator of two terrific podcasts, Already Gone and Don't Talk to Strangers. In Already Gone, Nina tells the stories of true crimes throughout the Midwest and gives a very human take on the plight of the victims and their families. In Don't Talk to Strangers, Nina gives an excellent long-form overview of the story of the still-unsolved Oakland County child killer. I highly recommend you check out both. In other business, I want to thank my latest Patreon supporter, Megan, for signing up and helping support the show. Thanks, Megan, you rock. And thanks to all my other patrons as well. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another way you can support the show is by subscribing and rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews really does help us out spreading the good word of the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us on many of your other major podcast apps as well. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can check out all our past shows. Besides that, you can find us on all our social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our email address is theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for joining us. And if you're listening to this right around when it comes out, Happy Halloween!